Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ken Babcock, co-founder and CEO of Tango, a how-to guide building platform that's raised $20 million in funding. Ken, thanks for chatting with me today. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, so I, um, before starting Tango, well, I actually met my co-founders at Harvard Business School, which is where we started Tango, seeded the idea, started talking with customers, and then eventually actually dropped out of Harvard Business School. But I had a full career before HBS and most of my career out in the Bay Area, working at Uber from 2014 to 2018, which was a series of, of ups and downs. I was a, a data analyst there as well as a member of the product strategy team, wore a lot of different hats, but a phenomenal experience seeing what a generational company looks like. But ultimately, before Uber started my career in consulting, which is where I went right out of Cornell University in upstate New York. Cornell's where I met my wife. Today, we live in the, in the Chicago area with our dog and our son, Quinn, who's uh, closing in on his, his first birthday. So that's a little bit about me. Nice. A couple of things I want to zoom in on there. So let's talk about Uber 2014. That was right when they were really blowing up, right? Yeah, it was pretty amazing. You know, I had been exposed to Uber through consulting, because, you know, you're traveling to cities and you're getting on and off of planes. And so you need a, you know, you need a taxi or a rideshare service. And I believe so strongly that, you know, the company was going to completely change the landscape for how we got around cities. And it was already doing that. And so, you know, when I had an opportunity to join, it was, it was a no brainer. So moved from New York to San Francisco, you know, every week at Uber was a record week. I mean, it was kind of like a parody of itself getting into all hands meetings and all the metrics were green up and to the right, new best week ever. I mean, it was, it was pretty surreal. And so seeing that and also just seeing like how driven everyone was and ambitious people were, was, it just made it such an incredible place to work. And then when did the transition uh, of CEO happen? Was that in like 2017? Yeah, it was right around then. So, you know, I think one big learning from Uber, you know, when you have a best week ever, every successive week, you tend to reinforce everything that you're doing. Like, well, everything we're doing is working. And clearly with Uber, that wasn't the case. There are a lot of really good things happening, but there are a lot of bad things that were getting covered up. And so that 2017 year, which kicked off with delete Uber and, you know, a lot of other stuff coming out and Travis ultimately being forced to resign. The ultimate outcome was the right one for Uber, but you know, the path to getting there was hard for employees, for investors, for users. I mean, it had a lot of us questioning, you know, are we ethically aligned with the company, which was challenging, but ultimately, you know, I stayed through Dara, you know, put a lot of optimism in the hearts and minds of employees. And so I stayed at Uber for another year after he joined. And have you watched the Showtime TV show yet? Super pumped. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, myself and some of my old Uber colleagues, we had, uh, we had some zoom rooms and some chats going and 
it's funny to see the, you know, the Hollywood version for sure. With how they depict Travis Kalanick there, how accurate do you think that is? And some of the other you know, like main players in the show, how accurate is that? Oh man, I'm not qualified to, to talk. I, I was in a meeting with Travis maybe two or three times, you know, but the data points that I do have, you know, Joseph Gordon-Levitt did a pretty good job. You know, he was extremely mission-driven to a fault, but also like extremely charismatic and did a phenomenal job getting people to join Uber, getting people rallied around what we were doing. But uh, yeah, I'd say fairly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> nice. And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and entrepreneur. What CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? Yeah. I mean, it's always hard to pick, you know, one person and say, oh yeah, I try to emulate every element. But, you know, I've always looked up to Phil Knight and Nike as a brand. You know, I think there's a lot of amazing learnings, which he outlines in his book, Shoe Dog about, you know, building a company, building a brand, building a team, you know, for me, the takeaways there, are, you know, that some of the best ideas have already been formulated, but they just need the right market. I mean, he was ultimately turning a technology that was developed in Japan into something that would apply to the American running market. And also the way that he like trusted his employees and built those relationships to encourage trust as well as like you know, just taking bets, taking big bets that people hadn't done before. I mean, before Michael Jordan, shoe deals really were a thing. And now you look, I mean, everyone's got a shoe deal. So it's a pretty inspiring read. And, you know, I find that like a lot of what he did in those early days is, are things that I, I come back to and, and think about with Tango. Yeah, you know, my girlfriend went to school in Oregon. So we uh, went up there to visit and we were driving home to SF and we uh, listened to that book on our way home. And it was a uh, it was really good. It's really refreshing to get outside of the world of tech as well and hear from like a, a non-tech founder and you know, learn from their perspectives and how they built things up. I try to draw as much inspiration as I can outside of tech. I don't know if that's, uh, we can call that maybe a hangover from being at Uber in San Francisco at the peak of the tech boom. But, you know, I'm not one of these people that puts... Elon Musk on a pedestal though, those people are dwindling, but I try to find as much inspiration because, you know, so much of building a company is about building a team and that happens everywhere. So, you know, even Bill Walsh's book, the score takes care of itself. It's a ton of learnings that you can apply to a tech company. So I agree with you. Yeah. That was my next question. If you had to pick just one, what book would you say has had the greatest impact on how you view the world? Yeah, probably Culture Code. I mean, I know I mentioned like three books here in the last four minutes, but Culture Code is an amazing book and it's all about teams. It's all about what makes the best teams. You know, I think this actually is sort of the unifying theme that brought myself and my co-founders together to to start Tango, which is that, you know, there are intricacies in, in making a team successful. It's not just the sum of a team's parts and there's so much that goes into it. And like I said, you know, building a company is so much about building a team, but also what we're doing at Tango is very much, how do we leverage the, the excellence and make sure that's available to everyone on a team? I love that. Now let's talk about what you're building a bit more. So can you talk us through the origin story behind the company? Yep. So Brian, Dan and I met at HBS. I, I mentioned that, but you know, what we really started clicking on was this theme of team performance. 
it's something we all cared about. You know, Dan had actually been, you know, captain of the Brown football team and undergrad, you know, there's, there's a team right there. Brian had exclusively founded companies, which like I said, is so much about team building. And then, you know, for me, I became a manager of people really early in my time at, at Uber. I had a team of seven when I was 24, which frankly probably shouldn't have happened. <laughs> but the three of us, you know, no matter what idea we were talking about, it always came back to teams are so complex. We want to understand more about them. We want to find the problems and pain points. And so, you know, the big one that we tried to focus in on was you have high performers on teams. Why is it that not everyone can perform at their level? There's a million answers to that. But one piece of that puzzle is it's not readily accessible what a high performer does to achieve those results, you know, their, their process, their how. And so what we said, you know, is like, how can we, how can we actually make that more visible? And that really became an improvement on documentation. You know, when you talk about documentation, even when you say the word, people kind of start, <laughs> start rolling their eyes a bit. It takes too long to create it. Uh, once you do create it, it gets stale very quickly. And then once it's stale, it just becomes a pain. You know, people are pinging you, Hey, I think this is broken. And so we started focusing on documentation because we felt there just had to be a better way of doing it. Like people are executing on processes daily and that's what makes them great. You know, the, how they do their work how come there isn't a passive experience to creating documentation? And so that's really what we built with Tango. It's a, you know, it's a Chrome extension that allows you to create documentation, everything you just did, you know, in the flow of work. And we create that step-by-step -step tutorial in a matter of seconds. And then that can be easily shared or exported to your internal knowledge base or wiki. And that just increases the velocity of knowledge sharing because it's so easy. You know, when something's stale, then it's as easy as just turning on the Chrome extension again. So that's really what united us and starting Tango. And who's your true competitor then? Is it people just doing nothing or people doing Google Docs or is there an established player in this space? You know, I think there's really two alternatives. One is the extremely clunky, let me open a Word doc. Let me take a bunch of screenshots. Let me put those screenshots in a folder. Let me edit those screenshots. Let me then paste them into the Word doc. People don't need to hear me go on and on, but that's kind of the old way of doing things, which, you know, I think has contributed to, you know, we have an NPS score of 89 wow. because the old way of doing things is so painful. And then I, you know, I think the other piece, and I view them as both a competitor, but also a complement to what we're doing, which is screen recording. You know, I think Loom has gotten so popular during and post pandemic where people, you know, record themselves walking through documents or walking through presentations, but there's a lot of inefficiencies in that. It's inefficient to record a loom. You got to say the right thing. You got to do the right actions or else you got to rethink it. And then, um, for the viewer, it's also a really clunky viewing experience. Cause if you're trying to replicate what that person is doing, you got to pause, rewind, rebuffer. And instead, you know, we feel like the format and the methodology that that we've created with Tango is much, much, much easier for someone to replicate. And so Loom's great for a lot of things, but we, we're much better for, you know, process replication and process capture. And in terms of market categories, where does the product fall? Is this like business process management, 
Is it team performance? How do you think about the market category? Well, uh, like any good founder, we're thinking about, you know, almost an entirely different market altogether, but I would say it touches on, you know, process management, process optimization. You, know, you think about companies like Salonis and what they do, process mining. It also touches on knowledge bases. You know, those are the canvases for how knowledge is shared. We're sort of the, the paintbrush, if you will. So, you know, it touches on that, but the way we're really thinking about it is, you know, kind of what we call like productivity intelligence or knowledge intelligence, this idea that over time, what we'll be able to do is actually validate what are your best practices proactively, as opposed to you having to do that staleness of knowledge, staleness of process should be like completely eradicated. That's a belief that we have as well. And so. You know, that category is one that's so underdeveloped and, you know, probably ties back to my answer on competitors, right? And so it's not necessarily what the product can do today, but long-term, that's the direction that we want to head is being as dynamic and ever-changing as your business is, right? There's a rate of change of any business. And so we want to be able to adjust best practices to reflect that. And what types of activities are you pursuing to create that category demand? Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is brand and solution awareness. You know, I think when we talk to users, we don't have to spend any time explaining the problem. You know, the, the market is hugely problem aware, which is great for us. But where they lack understanding is really on the solutions. I think one challenge is that people don't even know what to Google. You know, if you're going through a clunky documentation exercise, something that you've done time and time again, but you know that you have to do it, you know that it's painful. You don't even know that there's an alternative. And so what we're trying to do is spread more awareness of this new way of doing things. And, you know, that's a combination of PR campaigns, influencer marketing, you know, even recognition. Like we were named a Google Chrome favorite extension of 2022. We were named to Fast Company's next big things in tech. Those are all amazing accolades, but it's all in service to making the market more aware that a better way exists. And what do you do to like you know, agitate that problem and create urgency? You know, like on our end, for example, we're a small company, about 20 people, and all of our process docs are Google Docs. They're you know, anywhere from 10 to 70 pages long, depending on the process. But it does work overall. You know, we have checklists there. People follow them. And I think there's probably a lot of companies who are in a similar situation where like what they're doing is okay. Like, what do you do to create urgency to make someone switch and try and use a new product? Yeah. So I think that comes down to our aha moment. You know, for us, we measure that constantly. You know, I think one week we had our best, best week ever. It was 4.8 minutes, you know, average new user to get to that aha moment, which is creating your first tango. And once you do that, you know, you see that oh man, that documentation that I was creating that would take me hours, just took me minutes. And so part of getting users to see that value is embracing the product-led growth strategy that we've had where, you know, it's a freemium model. People can get started today all on their own. You know, they can try it and if they love it, they can continue using it. If they don't, it's just as easy to kind of remove it. And so that frictionless experience is what we've prioritized such that people can come in and and see that value. You'll also see like on our website, we just are very, very clear about 
what that problem is. And we try to use language and phrasing and understanding that reflects what our end user is feeling around documentation. And on the the topic of PLG, is that something that you started from day one or when you started? Was that the goal was to have a PLG go to market motion or did that come up later? I mean, yeah, it wasn't something where I'd say we just had like the utmost conviction from day one. But what we started doing was talking just about, you know, who is going to feel this problem most acutely. And we kind of used the the vitamin painkiller framework. And so when we talked to team leaders and managers, they were definitely reflecting, you know, more of that vitamin. Oh yeah, this will be good for me. Or like, this is good hygiene. We should do this. Or like, oh, that'll cut down on that. Okay, great. But it wasn't something that compelled them so much that they were like, can I try it today? When we talked to their individual team members or the frontline people, the people responsible for creating documentation, that was when like eyes started to light up. That's when people were like, oh my gosh, like what have I been doing all this time? That was pretty powerful. And so we said, you know, if that is the case, we need to gear all of our marketing towards that person. And the best way to reach that person and get them using it is going through kind of a bottoms up product led growth strategy, because going tops down, we're going to miss all this demand. You know, it's going to be something that's going to be at the hands of that team leader. And so that's really where the product led strategy came from. And can you share any numbers that demonstrate the growth and traction and adoption that you're seeing today? Totally. We launched in September of 2021. So 15 months ago, you know, we're over 250,000 users today, you know, and revenue has accelerated nicely, but most of that growth, almost 40% has come from, you know, what we would call virality, but referrals, word of mouth, which is really powerful. So that is part of the nature of documentation. Someone creates something, they share it with somebody else. And then that person says, holy cow, what did you just do? And then they go ahead and they download Tango. And so that for us has kept our acquisition costs incredibly low, but is also, you know, scaled in a way that, you know, has been pretty powerful. That's such a fascinating product too, where the virality is built into it because of what it does. Yeah. I mean, you see that with a lot of products. I mean, Loom, where we already talked about Loom, like similar story there. And yeah, I think that's the best outcome, right? Somebody shares something, somebody believes in something so much, or they see the value. They're putting their credibility behind a product as opposed to the product trying to communicate it. It's a much higher likelihood to sign up, activate, engage. It's awesome. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the dream for a founder, right? I had the founder of Fireflies.ai on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, yeah. And they're like, yeah, the AI note taker tool that, you know, pops up on the meetings. And we were talking about something similar where their virality is built right into the product because every time they join a meeting, bam, it's right there advertising and yeah, driving users to the product. So I love those types of products. Yeah, Fireflies is great. We've used them before. And yeah, I totally, I totally hear you. People are like, who's that other person in the meeting? <laughs> it works. Exactly. Now, are there any types of companies or market segments that you're really seeing a lot of adoption with right now? We're very horizontal. So we see a ton of company sizes, industries, roles, but the ones that are the most engaged tend to have a direct responsibility of either internal or external training. And I'll explain that a little bit. So external training, customer support, 
customer success. They also have internal components of that as well, but you know, that's really powerful. And then internal training, IT teams, L and D, I would say that, you know, those four groups have been really awesome for us. And so over the course of the next year, we're going to continue to lean in and, and probably actually lean in more heavily to, to those personas. And if you had to break it down into like one thing you got right and how you've been able to rise above the noise and get, I think you said 250,000 users, what would you say you got right? I think it was just a clear communication of value and realization of value. You know, that metric I mentioned earlier, time to aha moment. So many companies struggle with that. You know, there's so many software tools I think we all probably think of where the product tour takes a while. There's a million widgets. You don't know where you need to start. Like it's just becomes very cumbersome. And for us, you know, simplicity has been the beauty of it, which is like, we're not going to overwhelm you with features because we think that that's additive. We're just going to focus on the core job that you're trying to do, which is create documentation faster. So I think that's the thing that we got right was optimizing for that, that aha moment. And looking through your website, I, I have to give you credit. It's one of the, the best websites I've seen in terms of communicating what you do. A lot of the websites that I go on today, I read it and I walk away thinking like, so what the hell does that company do? You're like, what, what problem do they solve? You know, it's like immediately unclear and, and full of buzzwords. But I definitely recommend to all the listeners to check out your website because I think it's a masterclass in really just simple communication and really simply explaining things in an easy way. And it hasn't always been that way, to be <laughs> clear. Uh, but yeah, the website is tango.us. So give it a look. But I do think it's hard for founders sometimes to operate, you know, what we call like high low. You're at this super high altitude where you're thinking big picture, long-term vision, you know, being super ambitious in everything that you say and do, but then also going low and speaking directly to the end user. And I think like we've obviously had some great team members that have pushed us in that direction, but that website is an example of, you know, going to that lower altitude, getting closer to what the customer cares about, as opposed to trying to impress an investor, which is not what the website's for. That seems to be a, one of the main causes, at least from what I've seen and, you know, from my conversations with founders, you know, there's obviously very different messages. An investor is, you know, buying what the future looks like, but a customer doesn't give a crap about it, right? They don't care what the future of how-to guides look like or the future of documentation. They just want to know how it can solve their problem. I feel like most of the websites I see where they're really struggling, it's clear that they're conflicting or kind of combining those two. They're trying to speak to investors and customers at the same time. And I think in the end, that ends up, you know, not speaking to either of them, really. Totally. Totally agree with you. And in terms of your go-to market, what would you say was your single greatest challenge and how'd you overcome it? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about how the website makes everything very clear. I mean, like I said, it's taken a lot of iterations, but back in the day, we, we struggled with communicating verbally what the product did. And I think the reason for that was some lack of familiarity, probably also the language that we were using. We didn't nail a perfect elevator pitch, but what we realized there was that demos would get the job done in like 30 seconds. You, know, you could easily show a demo of Tango because it's simply, let's go through a process. And then in a matter of seconds, let's see exactly what that spits out on Tango. And so we just started saying, okay, if we can find more and more opportunities to visually display this product, 
the better, you know? So that's why we leaned into influencer marketing on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, because that gave us an opportunity to visually demonstrate the product. So the early mistake was trying to pitch it at every moment and trying to use text when in reality, you know, the product kind of sold itself. And you mentioned TikTok there. So I have to ask, how are you seeing that work for you? I feel like that's been the, uh, the big talk the last month or so as everyone's gearing up for 2023 content marketing plans or marketing plans in general. From a B2B perspective, I think that's somewhat debated. You know, should you use TikTok? Should you not use it? So what's your experience been with TikTok so far? It has to be very specific to the company, right? It's not a one size fits all. I think it's worked for us because of that visual component and because of the influencers that we've worked with. So we've thought very deeply about what audiences do we want to reach? How are those audiences reflected in certain influencers and communities? Do certain influencers target like a specific persona that we care about? And so all of that has kind of played into it. And TikTok has had amazing communities for learning and development for operations professionals and for productivity. And so, you know, for us, it made a lot of sense. So, you know, I don't want to get on here and tell everyone that they need to be on TikTok, but you know, if it starts making sense for you from a communication of value, from a persona standpoint, from an audience standpoint, then like, yeah, go for it. And on the topic of influencers, can you give us an example of what a influencer looks like that you've worked with? Yeah. So they're typically somebody, you know, who speaks to or embodies a specific persona. So a great example, we worked with a teacher that a bunch of L&D professionals and other teachers, you know, follow because a lot of her content isn't just specific to her classroom or what she teaches, but it's how to communicate concepts, how to educate people, how to get people using new software. And so for us, we are like, oh, that's a perfect fit. Because, you know, she's speaking directly to those IT folks that are following her. So she did a few videos for us. They performed super, super well. And, you know, we've seen continued high engagement from those users. So it's not necessarily the group that has the biggest following. You know, you think, oh, I want to go after the biggest influencer. It's really the group that has a niche enough audience that engages with that person at a high level. So I tell people to steer away from followers and I actually think more about viewership relative to that follower count. So we're not going to see Kim Kardashian pushing Tango anytime soon? I don't think so. I don't think so, but I have been surprised so many times on this journey. Um, so we'll see. What's the most surprising thing that you've had as you've built this company out? I think the biggest thing, and maybe it's not a surprise, but because I did feel this at Uber, but I think we've been able to attract amazing people and amazing talent, you know, largely because of the mission. You know, a lot of what we're trying to do is accelerate knowledge transfer, bring teams up to speed, you know, leave less people feeling siloed or not having the answers. And that's resonated with so many people, which is like been kind of a confirmation of, you know, what we thought about the market and the future of work and how enterprises need to change. But it's also gotten us to, you know, hire some just awesome individuals. And, you know, uniting the team around that mission really makes everything easier as a CEO. So I saw that at Uber for sure, but I, I was sort of surprised when I saw it play out at such an early stage with Tango. Interesting. And last question here for you. If we zoom out into the future, what's the three-year vision for Tango? 
Yeah. So today we're focused on creators of documentation. So saving them time, creating that documentation, the next step called the, you know, maybe in the next one to two years, it's really building for that consumer of knowledge, the person who's on the receiving end of the documentation. How do we help them replicate process? How do we help them walk through a process? How do we help them give feedback back to the creator? That's stuff that we're going to build for. And then once that loop is created, you know, creator to consumer and the feedback loops are there, that's when we can really start to do some interesting stuff around Tango, actually telling organizations, here's your best practice. Here's the tools that are driving efficiency. Here are the people that are driving efficiency. Here's how people improve once they've replicated a certain task. Those are all things really powerful that, you know, I think Gong has done a great job for sales teams with this and like looking at the audio file and making inferences and insights on what makes teams effective. You know, we want to do that for anything that's on your screen, right? So much of people's process is digital. We should be telling organizations, hey, here's what your best practice is and here's what your team should be following. Amazing. Love that. Unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. Before we wrap, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Tango.us. That's our site. You can find everything you need there. Awesome. Ken, thank you so much for taking the time to chat and talk about what you're building and share your vision. This all sounds super exciting and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Thanks, Brett. Keep in touch.